my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. It's a joy uh, to be with you, a joy to serve uh, with you and uh, be a part of this body. Uh, we do have a baptism Sunday next Sunday, uh, November 10th. Uh, we have one baptism so far for sure. Uh, and we still have room for more. And so if you're interested, do you have questions about that? Please uh, grab a hold of one of the pastors here today, even before you go, or, or feel free to reach out to us uh, throughout the week. We'd love to meet with you and prepare you uh, to be ready to celebrate uh, next week. Um, the gospel not only makes possible and gives shape to your relationship with God, but also the gospel is meant to give shape to all of your relationships, every single one of them. And as we continue in our, our study of Galatians today, we, we see that the gospel is meant to give shape to friendship in particular. Uh, the passage immediately before this, which was, we looked at a couple weeks ago, uh, details with kind of, kind of details out the conflict that every Christian kind of endures throughout our, our lives following Christ. The, the conflict between the flesh and the spirit uh, that's at battle kind of within. And, and in that, Paul uh, pointed, out to, uh, pointed us toward the way of victory in that battle by remembering the gospel, by remembering that we belong to Christ and working in step with the Spirit to crucify the flesh, to crucify those sinful over-desires, and redirect our hearts back to worship uh, of Jesus, that the fruit of the, so that the fruit of the Spirit uh, would grow in our character. And, and now, Paul wants to show how keeping in step with the Spirit will transform our relationships. It, it'll transform our, our, all of our relationships. And in particular, he wants to show us how the gospel uh, transforms our friendships. Uh, there is a sense in which we live in a culture that greatly undervalues friendship. It, it greatly undervalues friendship. And, and thinking about the different types of love relationships that are kind of reflected in the, the different Greek words for love that we see in the scriptures, there, there's, of course, uh, you know, different sorts of relationships there. There's family love, the Greek word uh, storge. Uh, there's romantic or sexual love, which is the Greek word eros. And, and then there's, of course, the love of, of friendship, uh, the word philos. Uh, and we live in a culture that seems to elevate romantic love, eros, above all else. Uh, you, you see this, right? The movies we watch, the books that we read, they largely center on some sort of romantic relationship. Doesn't matter whether it's a drama, it's a comedy, even an action movie, there's usually some sort of romance that's kind of at the center of that. And in our era, we, we can simply say friends are not as famous as lovers. But in ancient cultures, uh, and in the view of the Scripture, friendship is vitally important. Vitally important. C.S. Lewis, uh, of course, in the, the book The Four Loves, in his great essay on friendship, he, he points this out. He says, but very few modern people think friendship a love of comparable value or even a love at all. Tristan and Isolde, uh, and I don't speak German, so sorry, uh, Antony and Cleopatra, Romeo and Juliet uh, have innumerable counterparts in modern literature. David and Jonathan have not. Uh, to the ancients, friendship uh, seemed the happiest and most fully human of all loves, the crown of life and the school of virtue. The modern world, in comparison, ignores it. We admit, of course, that besides a wife and family, a man needs a few friends, but the very tone of the admission and the sort of acquaintanceships uh, which those who make it would describe as friendships uh, show clearly that what, what they are talking about has very little to do with that philia which Aristotle classified among the virtues. 
it is something quite marginal, not a main course in life's banquet, a diversion, something that fills up the chinks of one's time. The ancients, C.S. Lewis is saying there, they grasp the uniqueness of, of friendship more than we do. Uh, what they in the Bible understood is that family love, storge, romantic love, eros, in a large way, they, they just sort of happen to you, right? You don't choose your brothers and your sisters and your mother and your father. It's just like, boom, there they are. You know, this, this just happened. That's who we have. And even to some degree, romance uh, just sort of happens to you. Like, what do, we, what do we say? We say, you fell in love, right? We fell in love with one another, which is sort of kind of pointing to this, this sort of understanding that sometimes that attraction just sort of comes upon you. You don't necessarily even choose it. It just sort of, sort of happens to you sometimes. But friendship doesn't happen unless you work at it. It doesn't happen unless you, you put some effort into it. it. It only, in fact, happens to the degree that you work at it. And that's why the ancients put it up on a pedestal and considered it, in some ways, the most virtuous of all the different kinds of love because, in some ways, it was the most deliberate, the most intentional. It, it, it's with that lens of understanding that you should hear Jesus saying to his disciples in the gospel, you're, you're not just my disciples. You're not just my followers. You're not just my students. You're my friends. And here Paul is making clear that all other believers in Christ, in your Christian community, in our little body here, are to be your friends. They're to be your friends. And obviously there are degrees to friendship. You know, even with Jesus, Jesus tells the twelve, you are my friends. But even amongst the 12, Jesus is closer with, with three, right? Peter, James, and John. And, and you can even say and make the argument from the Scripture that, that John is his best friend, his closest friend. But the principles of friendship here that Paul speaks of should give shape to our relationships with one another in the body of Christ, being real friends to one another, intentional friends with one another. That's what we see in our text today, Galatians chapter 5, verse 26 through chapter 6, verse 5. If you would turn there and stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Galatians five twenty-six through 6, 5. Hear the word of the Lord. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to be together. Um, help us to see, though, in that gratefulness for the freedom to worship you, the freedom to gather, also the great blessing of, of one another, of the friendship that you invite us into within the body of Christ with, with each other. And Lord, you are, of course, the ultimate burden bearer, uh, bearing the burden of our sin, our guilt, in our place on the cross. But you also 
You also bear our burdens largely through the friends you bring around us to share the, the, the daily encounters of, of trial and tribulation and struggle and temptation, doubt and fear, and even the joy. You, you give us friends to walk with us, to support us, for us to be a support to them. Lord, help us not to take those relationships for granted. Help us not to just leave them on the margins, but to be intentional in the way we love one another and bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. May people see that in this body. May they feel that and may they be transformed by your grace through it. I pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Uh, in, this, in this passage, we're going to see, we're going to look at three characteristics of gospel friendships. Uh, gospel friendships are free uh, from conceit, uh, of conceit. Uh, they involve bearing one another's burdens. And lastly, they display the love and grace of Jesus. First, uh, gospel friendships are free of conceit. Now, I, I think it's interesting right off the bat here that Paul seems to be pointing out that the first and great evidence that we are walking in step with the Spirit is not just this like private, mystical, spiritual experience, but rather the practical ways that we love and relate to one another in our relationships. Seeing that the first aspect of the fruit of the Spirit is, is love, that, that seems to make absolute sense. So look with me again, verse 26. He says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And, and the, the Greek word here translated conceit literally means vain glory. Uh, or empty of honor. Uh, the understanding is that the person is holding on to an opinion of himself or herself, which is empty. It's vain. It's false. Uh, they are cherishing kind of an illusion of themselves, or they are just plain conceited. Uh, another way of understanding conceit is that it is a deep insecurity, is really what it is. It's a deep insecurity, a perceived absence of honor and glory that leads you to try to prove your worth or, or show your worth to yourself and to others. And this naturally leads you to compare yourself with, with other people. And so this is very instructive for you and, and me if we understand this. It, it's helpful here because it's very helpful for us to understand that our conduct to others is so often determined by our opinion of ourselves. The way we relate to others, others is often defined and determined by the way we view ourselves. And conceit, right? And Paul is kind of really pointing out here that the reality uh, that you, you think too highly or too lowly of yourself, either way, it's a form of conceit. And conceit poisons relationships. It poisons them. If we were to dig deep enough, really, in any kind of, you know, deterioration of, of any sort of relationship that you've experienced in your life, and you are to dig deep enough, you will likely find that at the core of what caused that that relationship to sort of just explode, combust, wither away, it, what caused it at the core is likely some form of conceit. That's what caused it to fall apart. And Paul points out that when we are conceited, we will do one of two things. We will either provoke one another or we will envy one another. And to provoke, right, is to challenge someone to a contest. It's the attitude of, I know I'm better than you, so let me prove it to you. 
Let's have a little contest so I can show you why I'm better than you, why I am, am, am beyond you in this way or that way. And so you challenge someone to some form of, of dispute or contest or argument, to sort of kind of just flex your muscles a little bit and, and show your perceived superiority. Envy, on the other hand, is kind of on the other side of the spectrum. Envy comes when you view yourself as being inferior to the other person. And so you see yourself beneath them. And so you envy their gifts or their attainments, their achievements, their stuff. What Paul is getting at here is that these, are, these two attitudes tend to, to really be kind of our fleshly default ways of relating to one another. We either provoke or we envy. John Stott kind of sums it up this way in his commentary on Galatians. He says, we are motivated by feelings either of inferiority or superiority. If we regard ourselves as superior to other people, we challenge them, for we want them to know and feel our superiority. If, on the other hand, we regard them as superior to us, we envy them. In both cases, our attitude is due to vainglory or conceit, to our having such a fantasy opinion of ourselves that we cannot bear rivals. The Bible shows us here, and in other places as well, that pride is more than simply being arrogant. It's much more complex than that. Pride can absolutely be that kind of conceited arrogance that we think of, you know, the I'm better than you kind of attitude. But it's also pride to see yourself more lowly than you should. The person who thinks that they're the absolute worst is in so many ways just as prideful as the person who thinks they're the absolute best. Both are constantly thinking about self. How great I am or how terrible I am. But both, the focus is self all the time. One in a way that elevates, one in a way that disparages. But either is actually full of pride and conceit. One will provoke, the other will envy. Either way, the self-focus absolutely poisons our relationships with one another. As C.S. Lewis points out, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but rather humility is thinking of yourself less. Low self-esteem is not the same as gospel humility. It's actually a form of pride and just as much a rejection of the gospel as conceited arrogance. Both are born from a desire to gain glory for self and build an identity of our own. But true gospel friendships are free of conceit, of either kind. When you're walking in step with the Spirit, and the Spirit is at work in you, and the fruit of the Spirit is, is growing in your life, conceit and self-focus are driven from your heart. They're pushed out. You're partnering with the Spirit to kind of crucify your pride and your self-worship, which, which results in not thinking too highly or too lowly of yourself either way, but rather to view yourself, as Paul talks about in Romans 12, 3, with sober judgment, to assess yourself with accuracy, not too highly, not too lowly, and to really see yourself through the lens of the gospel. The Spirit opens your eyes to see both the reality of your own sin and unworthiness before the Lord, and also the reality of God's grace and His love and acceptance of you that defines who you are in Him. The Spirit also enables you to see the importance and value of other people in the sight of God as fellow image bearers created in the image of God. 
which means they inherently have dignity, value, and worth, no matter who they are. In light of the gospel, this leads you to count others more significant than yourself, to seek to serve them and put their interests ahead of your own, as you read in Philippians 2. Gospel friendships are free of conceit. They're not governed by rivalry, but instead service. You know who's really terrible at this? Pastors. It's, I'm, I'm, I mean this. Uh, you know, now, thankfully, I feel like I do run in certain circles of pastors where this is less present, but I have been in circles of pastors where this is the defining thing of the relationship. You walk into a room of fellow church leaders, and immediately we're assessing one another. Where do I fit in? Well, I'm we're doing better than they are. We're doing worse than they are. Uh, let's provoke and like, let's talk about how church numbers and attendance and, and what the budget's like so we can kind of flex our muscles and make ourselves feel like we're somebody. Or let's just envy what those other people have that have so much more. Right? It, pastors are sometimes the worst at this. But gospel relationships are to be free of conceit, not governed by rivalry, but instead by service. That's the first characteristic we see here that leads right into the second. Gospel friendships involve bearing one another's burdens. It's not just service in general that is characteristic of gospel friendships, but a specific kind of service. Bearing one another's burdens. Verse 2, Paul says it plainly. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And there are very clear assumptions that kind of lie behind this command, right? One is that all of us have burdens. All of us have burdens. It's not some people are burdened and some people are not. All of us have burdens. And secondly, God does not intend for us to carry those burdens alone. But sometimes we're stubborn, right? Sometimes we're, we're really, we're really stu- stubborn. We think, ah, oh, it would just be a bother. It, it, would, it would be a bother for me to tell my brother, my sister, my friend about the trouble that I'm facing right now, about the doubts that I'm, I'm wrestling with, about the fears and anxieties that I have. It would just be a bother to them. I'll just, you know, just, you know, what, what we're supposed to do with emotions, right? You just tighten them up together and bury them down deep and just leave them there, right? That's what we're supposed to do, right? No. Sometimes we're stubborn and we won't share. Sometimes we may even use the truth that God in Christ, He is our divine burden bearer, right? He's the one who bears our burdens, and it would be a sign of weakness to need anyone other than Jesus, anyone beyond Jesus. And it's true that in Christ, Christ alone, He's the only one who can bear your burden of sin. He's the only one who can bear that, your sin and your guilt. And that the truth is, in fact, He has borne that burden in his body on the cross, where he died for your sins. It's also true that Jesus says in Matthew 11, 28, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And in that, Jesus is inviting you to cast all of your burdens on him, all of your fears, all of your anxieties, all of your doubts, all the suffering, the loss, the grief, whatever it is that that we're facing, our temptations, to bring it to Him. You can bring all of your burdens to Jesus for sure. 
But we must never forget that one of the ways Jesus helps us bear our burdens is through the gift of friends who come alongside to help us. Paul himself speaks of this in 2 Corinthians 7, 5, and 6. He says, for even, when we came into, for even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but were afflicted at every turn. Paul is talking about we were really suffering and struggling here, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. In the midst of deep affliction, God comforted Paul and eased his burden through what? The gift of friendship. Here comes a friend to share this burden with me. Gospel friendship in which we bear one another's burdens is part of God's purpose for his people. And burden bearing, Paul says, fulfills the law of Christ. Now, it's possible that, that Paul here, uh, who, who loves to, you know, he's hard on false teachers. Uh, you'll see that in the scripture, right? Jesus hard on self-righteous religious people, false teachers, promoting false gospels. Paul carries on that same spirit, gentle with followers of Christ. And and so it's possible that that Paul's kind of, you know, given a little little jab here at the Judaizers. Of course, the Judaizers, the group of false teachers that had kind of seeped in this church uh, of Galatia, these churches of Galatia, trying, trying to heap on these people. Yeah, you need Jesus to be justified before God, but you also need to be circumcised. You also need to keep the dietary restrictions. You also need to keep all of the Levitical code of the Mosaic law. And so Paul may be kind of subtly, you know, saying, you know, instead of giving people uh, the law as a burden, uh, you should love them and actually lift their burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ is to love one another as God in Christ loves us. Paul said so much in Galatians 5.14, just a little bit earlier in the, in, the, in the book here. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And here Paul makes it clear that to love one another as Christ loved us may not necessarily lead to some big, spectacular, heroic act, but instead it might more often lead to mundane, unspectacular mostly unnoticed acts of burden bearing. It looks like somebody has a baby and you make them a meal and you take it to them. Or you go over to their house and you hold that baby for a little bit. So maybe somebody can get a shower or run a quick errand. It looks like someone loses a loved one and what do we do? We we cook them a meal and we take them a meal and we offer our presence and we sit and we listen. It looks like a community group rallying around a group member who's decided to to take on being a foster parent, pooling resources to help them get ready for their placement, supplying for some basic needs. It might be offering a young couple in in the church uh, some free babysitting so they can get out for a much-needed date night. It might be welcoming a couple single folks from the church, some college students maybe, into your Sunday afternoon and evening routines as a family to kind of provide an extended family for them while they're away from theirs. It might look like sharing a meal, listening to someone struggle, and then praying for them. 
To be a burden bearer in these ways is a great ministry that we're all called to. It's something every single Christian can and should do. And it's the natural outworking of the Spirit renewing your heart. This is what fulfills the law of Christ. Martin Luther wrote, Therefore, Christians must have strong shoulders and mighty bones. Metaphorically speaking, of course. But because we're all called to help one another bear these heavy burdens that we all face. And Paul emphasizes that in order to do this, we must first possess a, a proper gospel-shaped understanding of ourselves. Verse 3, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. The word for, right, the beginning of that verse makes it clear that if you make the mistake of thinking that you are something, then you will not bear one another's burdens. Because if you think you're something, you'll be tempted to think that you are above the struggles that other people face. And you'll think that to help them with that struggle would be demeaning yourself. Again, you see this connection Paul is making between your view of self and how you relate to others. But the gospel makes it clear that to think that you are something is to be deceived. Because as Paul says here, the gospel makes it clear that no matter who you think you are, apart from God, you are nothing. You're nothing. And you're thinking to yourself right now, this is really great for my self-esteem today. No, it's not good for your self-esteem, but it is good for your soul. It is good for your soul because the gospel declares the truth about who you are. On your own, apart from God, you are a sinner. You have rebelled against the God who created you and made you in his own image. And because of your sinful rebellion, you deserve judgment. You deserve God's wrath. You deserve eternal separation from God. But God in His mercy, He sought you out. He didn't leave you in that state. But rather, He sent His own Son to live the life that you never could in your place, free from sin in every way that you have failed to obey God. To die the death that you deserve for your sins on the cross once and for all. To be raised victorious over sin and death. That is to say, apart from God, you are nothing. And that everything you have is a gift of His grace. The next breath that you take, there it was. Grace. You don't deserve any of it. Therefore, you can never look at another human being and think, I'm somebody and they're beneath me. The gospel drives away any notion of superiority like that. It, it levels the playing field. We are all sinners in need of God's grace. And so no one's burden is beneath me. Uh, the gospel, when it is grasped, begins to put an end to our comparing ourselves with, with each other. Uh, verses 4 and 5, But let each one test his own work, and then his reasons to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. And this means that instead of comparing ourselves to others, we are to recognize that we are responsible to God for our own lives. And we will have to give an account to God one day for our own lives. There is no real contradiction here between verse 2 and verse 5. The Greek word for burden in verse 2 and the, the word for load in, in verse 5 are different words. 
uh, with the term in verse 5 referring not to the heavy load that it's kind of talked about in verse 2, but rather like a, a kind of a backpack, your own pack. What, what's, what's yours? And so verse 5 is really referring to the reality that God gives each of us different, a different set of difficulties and opportunities, different sets of weaknesses and gifts. And instead of comparing ourselves to each other, we, we need to look at our own particular tests, our own particular opportunities and duties, and respond to them with obedience and faith. Tim Keller kind of explains it this way in his commentary. He says, if, if we see life in this way, we will, we will judge our life each day against who we have been and who we could have been. When we see progress, we will take legitimate pride in it, whether or not we are better or worse than someone else. I've grown. I'm making progress. We will not compare ourselves with someone who has done less than us and feel conceited pride or someone who has done more and feel conceited despair or envy. God has given them a different load to carry and to serve Him with. Our task is to carry our individual load, not someone else's, in a way that pleases God. And this will lead us to a non-judgmental attitude and, and to be generous toward one another. Instead of, of seeing someone struggling and thinking, can you believe how they're acting right now? Oh my gosh, I, I cannot believe that they would be struggling in that way. Instead, you'll think, I don't know what pressures they're facing. I don't know where they came from, you know? Some of us get the ball handed to us and we're on the goal line and all we have to do is like fall and we will score. Some of us get the ball on our own one. We got a long way to go. We don't know where they are coming from all the time, where it is that they have been saved from and saved out of, it's entirely possible that this person that I am seeing before me struggling is actually obeying God better than I am today. Case in point, all the, the big uh, buzz around Kanye West, right? What should be a Christian response to that? It should be praise the Lord right? Praise the Lord. Like, do, do we all look at each other in this room and say, well, I wonder if his conversion will show itself to be true. We'll wait and see. Like, I, I sure hope that's not how we, we treat each other. And so that's not how we should treat a celebrity. But in the same sense, we shouldn't also say, well, he's a celebrity, so therefore now he is like the theologian extreme that we should all like f follow in every pattern. I've listened to the album, and I like the album, personally. But, uh, yeah, let's just praise the Lord that God has saved a brother. Let's pray for him. That should be our attitude. That should be our attitude towards one another. Gospel friendships involve bearing one another's burdens. We're to help carry those burdens that are too heavy for any of us to bear alone. But as John Stott says, there is one burden which we cannot share, and that is our responsibility to God on the day of judgment. On that day, you cannot carry my pack, and I cannot carry yours for how I've been faithful with what he's given me, what he's called me to, what he's, you're responsible for what he's given you, and what he's called you to. But praise God, praise God that Jesus has borne the ultimate burden for you and for me once and for all. And that moves us to the third characteristic here, that gospel friendships display the love and grace of Jesus. And Paul points to this in a very specific act of burden bearing in verse 1. 
says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in, a transgression, in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. To be caught into sin, in, in sin kind of brings to mind the, the account, at least for me, uh, of the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. She's caught in the very act of the sin. The Pharisees bring her before Jesus, kind of saying, what should happen to this woman? She's been caught in this sin. And the same spirit of love and gentleness that Jesus displays in that moment is to give shape to the way we, we bear this burden with our brothers and sisters when they are caught up in sin. We have plain instruction on how to engage with someone, a brother or sister, a friend who's caught in any sin here. Paul shows us what to do. He shows us who it is who's supposed to do it. And he shows us how it should be done. First, what, what to do is simply this. It is to restore. To restore. In the Greek, this is particularly powerful because the word restore here is actually a medical term used for kind of setting a fractured or dislocated bone. We are to restore the one caught in sin to restore them to their former condition of living in the fullness of God's grace and goodness. Notice what this plainly means. If we see our brother or sister in sin, struggling with sin, if we detect that they are struggling in some way, giving in to an ungodly pattern of behavior, we are not to simply stand by and do nothing. Like, you know, it's none of my business. What's going on in their world? I mean, that's their responsibility. Uh, you know, don't misapply verses 4 and 5 there. Like, no, you are responsible. You know, Cain's question, am I my brother's keeper? Like, the answer to that question is, yes, you are your brother's, your sister's keeper if you're in Christ. So the answer is not to say, stand back and do nothing and say, that's none of my business. That's not what we do. You know, we don't play the Switzerland card. I'm just going to be neutral. I'm just going to stand back and we'll just see what happens. That's not what we're called to. But that's not all. In light of the gospel, we're also not to despise or condemn our brother or our sister. Well, we don't say things like, well, figures that they'd be struggling with that. I mean, I saw that coming. Serves them right. That's not our response. Nor do we gossip about them. Can you believe what so-and-so just did? She is the worst. He is the worst. Nor do we go to the pastors and say, Hey, Pastor Kyle, did you, I, I need to tell you about so-and-so. They're struggling with this. You need to get on that. Get them straightened up. No, Paul says you, Christian, are to restore them. This is how Martin Luther applied this command. He says, run unto him and reaching out your hand, raise him up again, comfort him with sweet words and embrace him with motherly arms. That's the picture. It reflects the spirit of Jesus in John 8, 10 and 11. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Matthew 18 gives you the plain instructions on how this is to be done face-to-face, -face, privately. 
Not after you've talked to 12 other people about it, but directly seeking to restore, seeking to gain your brother, your sister, your friend. Second, Paul tells us who it is that's to do this restoring. And so he says, you who are spiritual should restore him. And that, that is not you who are spiritual. That's not referring to like some special, super spiritual group of Avenger Christians or whatever. Um, but rather it's saying, you who have the Holy Spirit, ordinary Christian, you, if you're a believer in Christ and the Spirit is at work in your life, you will do this. You will do this. This responsibility belongs to anyone who is a Christian, who calls himself a Christian, who's seeking to walk in step with the Spirit. And lastly, Paul gives instruction on how this is to be done. It's to be done in a spirit of gentleness. Gentleness is a, another aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. Paul's just mentioned at the end of chapter 5 there. And again, this is to be done by Spirit-filled Christians who are growing in that, displaying the fruit of the Spirit. And Paul adds that we are to watch ourselves lest we also be tempted, which seems to point that gentleness is kind of born out of and rooted in a sense of our own weakness and proclivity to sin. There's a reality that you and I won't be able to gently and winsomely kind of confront and restore a brother or sister if we don't first realize I too am capable of sin in this way. It is only the grace of God that I'm sitting on this side of this conversation right now. And the reality is, it, it will be reversed at some point. And it has been, if you're honest, been reversed at some point. Where you will need a brother or sister, a friend to love you enough to confront you in your sin. And gently, lovingly restore you. This sort of restorative love powerfully displays the love and grace of Jesus. Right? Think about it. Praise God that when he saw you in your sinful rebellion, he didn't just ignore it. Or say, well, it serves them right. I mean, God is actually in a perspective to say, I'm above this and superior to this. And I am not prone to struggle in this. Because God is perfectly holy and righteous. But praise God that he did not just stand at a distance and say, aren't they terrible? Doing nothing. But instead he sent his son Jesus who humbled himself, made himself nothing that he might come and bear the burden of your sin for you. He confronted you in love and gentleness with the truth that you are a sinner deserving of judgment and death, eternal separation from God, that on your own you are nothing and you have nothing. Yet in love, Jesus lives the sinless life you could and he dies the death you deserve, that he might restore you, reconcile you to God through, his, through faith in his finished work, pursued you when you were running away from him, when you wanted nothing to do with him, he ran after you in love, in patience, in gentleness. And in mercy, he brought you home to him. In gospel friendship, we get to display his love and grace as we encourage one another, 
as we bear one another's burdens, and even as we confront one another in our sin, and in gentleness seek to restore one another to Christ and His church. God has used dear friends in my life in, in many powerful ways uh, to grow me and keep me by His grace, and, 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 and so that by His grace He might work in and through me, um, I pray. Uh, I've, had, I, I've had one friend in particular who I couldn't help but think about as I'm preparing this sermon, uh, who when I thought about planning a church about nine or ten years ago, I reached out to, got connected with, and he welcomed me in like a brother, like an equal, when and in many ways I still am absolutely clueless. Um, and he shared the burden of planting this church with me, helping us in mundane mostly unnoticed sort of ways, over and over and over again. Uh, walking with me through deep and difficult challenges. Uh, faithfully pointing me back to Christ. Uh, confronted sin in me and would listen and be a place where I, I felt safe to go and confess things that few people know about my personal struggles throughout my life and, and he would speak words of God's grace to me do you hate your sin yes well then Jesus says to you go and sin no more my friend uh, would take no credit if he was here for any of that but simply point to Christ uh, as the one who loves us and calls us by his, to be his friends and calls us to be friends to one another in that same spirit. And so my friends in this room, wherever you're at today, if you're burdened, would you hear Jesus say to you, come to me all who labor and are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. But also hear Jesus saying to you, will you turn around and look at the friends I've also given to you to help you bear those burdens? Open your eyes to one another and look at one another through the lens of the gospel without conceit, not provoking or envying one another, but simply loving one another as you have been loved in Christ. If you know you have a brother or sister who's struggling and is caught up in sin, would you stop standing there doing nothing? Would you stop waiting for pastors to get involved and do the work that you've been called to do yourself? Would you stop talking about them with other people instead of going to them in love and gentleness? Would you understand that it's only the grace of God that is keeping you from struggling in the same ways? And in that spirit, would you go to them in gentleness mindful of your own proclivity to sin, and in love would you seek to restore them to Christ? And if you're here today, and you know that you're caught up in sin, you know that you're running in the opposite direction of Christ right now, would you look at Christ? Would you look at Jesus? And would you see him living for you dying for you, being raised for you, that you might be set free from whatever struggle it is that you're facing right now. And would you hear him say to you, who is there to condemn you? 
Do you hate that sin? Go and sin no more. Rest in his grace. Go to a friend in this room and confess and invite them into that struggle to bear that burden with you, to pray with you, to journey with you in that, that they might point you back to the hope that you have in Jesus. We're going to share in the Lord's Supper together as friends, remembering Christ's body that was broken, his blood that was shed as we take of the bread and the cup. And friends, this meal is, is but a foretaste of the feast that awaits us with Christ when he returns in glory and we gather together with him and all of our friends. Believers, you're invited to come forward as we continue to worship here to share in this meal, to break off a piece of the bread, to dip in the cup. We offer juice and wine to take as, as your conscience leads you. The wine is in the glasses marked with twine. If you're not a believer in Christ, this is a, a meal that's reserved for Christians. And so while believers are coming forward to share in this meal, the, the invitation to you is to, to look upon the cross of Christ and respond with, with saving faith, to take Christ in faith. There will be pastors and prayer responders here in the back of the room. Love to visit with you. Love to pray with you about anything that you're going through to share your burdens and point you to the hope that you have, we have together in, in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you for this time to worship. And we thank you for the gift of friendship. Lord, would you by your grace make us to be the kind of friends that embody the love and grace of Jesus. That are free that our hearts would be free of conceit. There would be a joy to bear one another's burdens together. That we would love one another even enough to risk our friendship, to go after those who are struggling and call them back to you with the same love and gentleness that you came after us, calling us back to you. God, would we be the kind of friends that fulfill the law of Christ in the way we love one another. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.